0: Hi there, this is David Noor. I want to welcome you to the Curve Vendors podcast. I'm so excited to finally publish Curve Vendors this year, my 11th book, as a follow-on to Relationship Economics and Co-Create. By the way, if you're curious, in short, Curve Vendors are your strategic relationships that enable this personal reinvention, this organizational reinvention in the future. Our research points to 15 forces that will dramatically impact the future of how we'll work live play and give the global pandemic is just one example so how will you remain relevant if more disruption will come at us more often with potentially far greater impact so in each episode i want to share with you insights great ideas from guests i'm inviting to join us as well as practical ideas in the evolution of your skills your knowledge and your behaviors so let's get started Hi everybody, Noor here. Let me ask you, what are you really getting from the public social networks? Have you noticed most are becoming increasingly divisive or highly self-promotional? Are you getting solicited for various products or services from a barrage of people you don't know? I'm seeing an interesting trend. One of micro communities, made up of smaller but more intimate gatherings of like-minded professionals. I've always believed that people fundamentally gather for two reasons, content and community. So what can I learn, and who else can I meet that I wouldn't otherwise? That's exactly what we've done. Earlier this year, we launched our private online community called the North Forum. It's a place where like-minded professionals are gathering to learn, share, and grow through insights about strategic relationships, visual storytelling, and their personal reinvention through this idea of nonlinear growth. This is also where you'll find the show notes from this episode, articles, references to position papers by my podcast guests. It's where I am every day, engaging now over 2,500 members, sharing exclusive content, resources, and events. So I hope you'll check it out at norgroup.com slash forum. That's n slash forum. Welcome back to another episode of the Curvebenders podcast. I got to tell you, today's session is one that I've been really looking forward to ever since I heard this executive at a Marshall Goldsmith gathering, boy, probably a year, year and a half ago. I'm joined by Harry Kramer. Hello, Harry. Great to be with you, David. It's great to have you. For those that may not know as much about you, could you kindly give us a few minutes of your background and your current focus?
1: Sure, sure. You know, Grew up in Minnesota, went to college there, ended up going to school at uh, Northwestern Kellogg, ended up, I say, going to Baxter Healthcare, a $12 billion healthcare company. I went there for two years as a junior analyst, forgot to leave and ended up being there for almost 25 years, David, in all kinds of roles, including ending up becoming uh, the chief financial officer, the chairman and the CEO. And about, I guess it was 13 years ago when I stepped down out of that position, I've had the ability to do two things. One, I'm a professor at Northwestern University, the Kellogg School, now myself, and I spend uh, half my time at Madison Dearborn, a venture, a private equity firm based in Chicago, where I'm just uh, serve on a lot of their boards, including a chairman of three healthcare companies.
0: What a fabulous background, Harry! What drew you to teaching? What made you want to come back to Kellogg and teach?
1: You know what? I really feel this calling, my friend, to have a difference in the world. And when I think about where we stand now, I think we could use more value-based leaders. So when the dean asked me, hey, I'd love to have you teach, I said, teaching finance, I don't think makes sense at this point in my life, but I'd love to have, I'd love to focus on leadership, value, and ethics and have a small impact on the next generation of people that are going to run organizations, large, small, private, public, for-profit, not-for-profit, domestic, global.
0: I I love it. Every time I hear you speak, you always leave me wanting more. So now I want to know your definition for value-based leaders. What is that?
1: Yeah. In in my mind, David, a a value-based leader is somebody who literally takes the time to figure out what are my values? What's my purpose? What really matters? What kind of a leader do I want to be? What kind of example do I want to set? It's not about me, it's about making the impact I can through the development and growth of people around me.
0: Do you see a lot of introspection going on with leaders you and I know?
1: Well, you know what? One of the big issues in life, I think, David, and you see a lot of this yourself, is that everybody's busy, everybody's got a million things to do. And when you've got a million things to do and you start multitasking, you start to confuse the difference between activity and productivity. And as a result of that, people do not take the time to think. And I'm a big believer, as you know, in the taking the time to self-reflect. Slow down, get off by yourself, turn off the gadgets, and ask some of those fundamental questions. Because at the end of the day, how can you possibly lead others if you can't lead yourself?
0: Love that. So, why do you believe the combined, uh, Harry? You've got a great background at Baxter, and I'm and I've been really curious about this for some time. Why do you believe the combined quality of patient experience, consistent access, right, especially for those rural communities, when we continue to hear of hospitals that are so desperately needed shutting down? And by the way, affordable cost of care is such an elusive measure to innovate.
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Part of the problem. Is I think often because people are moving around so fast they don't realize how unique healthcare is and why it costs what it costs. Because as you well know, David, from a lot of your work, you know the impact of technology reduces the cost of most things. Interestingly enough, the impact of of healthcare technology on healthcare it increases the total cost. And people say, "Well, no, how could that be? Because aren't some operations a lot cheaper now with new technology?" Yes, but just from an economic standpoint, David, people are now be able to stay alive longer to get all the things they would never have gotten because they would have been dead. So it's wonderful that you and I now unlike 50 years ago instead of having a life duration of 65 years we're blessed that we could live till 85 or 90 but the cost of every additional year of life adds a tremendous amount of cost. I don't know about you but when I think of my parents and grandparents as they got older, how you doing? They were either at the doctor, going to the doctor or uh, just, you know, coming back out of the doctor. So The the fact that the more successful we are keeping people alive increases the total cost, which raises this enormous issue of who's going to pay for it.
0: Harry, you've got a great lens of you're both shaping the minds of the next generation of leaders at Kellogg, but you're also on multiple boards. And at Madison-Dearborn, you're seeing a lot of different businesses. You're seeing a lot of different leadership styles. Are there some key trends you believe will continue to bolster enterprise growth and success in the healthcare sector? And and which trends do you believe could threaten it?
1: Yeah. So here's the interesting thing, David. I actually believe, and you should challenge this and, and your readers, I actually think that one of the big issues we have is we end up for the most part in this country focusing not on healthcare, but on sick care. We're unbelievably good of taking care of people after they get sick. But the reality of life is, and I think the people are going to prosper, are the people that figure out a way to keep people healthy before they get sick. I mean, think about it, David. Here we are in the world's wealthiest country with all the technology we have, and more than 30% of Americans are obese. Well, guess what? If you're obese, high probability you may get diabetes, and if you get diabetes, you could have kidney failure. And you take a look at what goes on we haven't found a way to encourage people that they have to take care of themselves and i think companies and organizations that figure that out are going to have an enormous advantage over the folks that are involved in sick care where at the end of the day the cost becomes higher and higher
0: switch gears with me i've heard you speak several times your passion comes through on several topics harry i was dumbfounded but after getting to know you this this makes a lot of sense no television You have an incredibly deep faith. You talk a lot about 168 hours. Can you elaborate, and you brought up value-based leadership, can you elaborate on where they kind of came from and why they drive you as a leader that you are?
1: Sure. And uh, David, I talk about this a lot in in my Kellogg classes, but at the end of the day, two, two important things. You and I, David, and all of your listeners, we all have one thing in common. We have 168 hours in a week. Or some people would say, how busy are you? Well, it's 24-7. Multiply it out. So when you got 168 hours and you have to decide, all right, how do I spend that time? How do I think about my career, my family, my spirituality, my health? A little bit of sleep, a little bit of fun, and maybe people realizing we're here for a blink of an eye. What's our responsibility to make a difference in the world while, while we're passing through? And I really do believe that taking a little bit of time to be self-reflective and asking yourself, what really is important to you? And as you well know, David, everybody's going to have a different view of how they want to spend their 168. I mean, you or I aren't going to make that judgment call as to what it ought to be. But it's very, very interesting when you talk about balance and what are you trying to balance? You'll hear people talk about this bizarre concept of work-life balance. You're either working or you're living. Well, think about it. How about thinking about life balance? And I'm sure this happens to you, David. I get a lot of comments from executives, CEOs, where they'll say, Harry, i love to talk to you. I'm having trouble balancing my life. I'm having trouble balancing my life. My observation, most people that are having trouble balancing their life, David, have not been self-reflective enough to figure out what they're trying to balance. If you haven't figured it out, how could you possibly do that? And I was very fortunate as a child, having very religious parents and grandparents that basically said, all right, what is important in your life? Is it about materialism? Is it all about success? Or Harry, really should it be about significance? You know, is it your resume or is it your legacy? And, You know, think, Harry, about what really matters and why. And I've had that opportunity to think about that from from when I was very young. In fact, I don't know if I told you the story, David, but my my father used to say to me, have you ever seen a hearse with a coffin in it going to a cemetery with a U-Haul attached to it? And I'd say, Dad, what are you thinking? He said, well, Harry, 90% of people I know either believe all of this stuff they're accumulating is going with them Or they think they're living forever. Because once you realize that's not happening, maybe you start to figure out what really matters and why and how you want to manage your 168.
0: Love that. And Harry, I got to tell you, a lot of the leaders I'm coaching, and I want to reiterate your comment for our listeners, regrettably, I don't think many of us make as much time to think and be reflective in those values and the things that were really important to us. So are there some top attributes you believe are predictors of future success of a great leader?
1: You know, I'm, I'm a little biased, David, but when I first started my first class at Kellogg, you always get asked great questions. The students and the executives asked me, how do you become a value-based leader? What does that really take? And in, in my first book, From Values to Action, which you and I have discussed, David, I literally laid out four things that I believe are key. On this leadership journey, and as as you well know, we talk about leadership, it isn't a destination, check the box, now I'm a leader. No, it's a journey. And every day God gives me, I can get better than the day before. And I look at it on four dimensions. If I can become more self-reflective, which we've touched on already, if I can become more balanced and have a balanced perspective in everything I'm looking at, if I can develop true self-confidence... And I always double underline the word true. And if I have genuine humility and I'll double double underline the word genuine, I think I'm well on my way. Why? Because I'm going to attract people that want to work with me. I can influence people. I can relate to people. And people realize this, this person has no personal agenda other than doing the right thing for the team and for the organization.
0: What a powerful statement for our audience. I would highly encourage you to go back and listen to that one again, because I think Harry just gave all of us a blueprint on what to focus on and how to create a greater impact. So you have in the past and continue to work with a number of private equity firms. Harry, with a plethora of capital that's sitting on the sideline looking for quality deals and the low cost of that available capital, what are some of the, the PE, capital market trends you're excited about? And I'm going to ask you to flip the coin. Are there some that concern you?
1: Sure, sure. Well, one of the, and I think it's nice that you almost think of it as as a T account. As a former CFO, we'll kind of look at the pros and cons, right? So the pros, and and you laid out a couple, uh, there's a lot of capital out there. And there's a lot of companies uh, that are publicly traded that are saying, hey, I would much prefer to be private. And I don't have to look at quarter to quarter. And they're willing to consider being owned by a private equity firm. So there's there's quite a few out there the the end there's enough money to be able to look at it so a lot of interest a lot of demand a lot of supply that's the good news i think the challenge is you well see in the market that we're living in now where the market's hitting all-time highs almost every day the cost of acquiring these is prohibitive and i think you've really got to ask yourself if, if i buy david's company for 100 million what's the probability that over a five to six seven year period I can get this to be worth $200 because from a private equity standpoint, if I can't generate something in the order of a 15% annual compound return, it's not going to make sense to my my limited partners. So unlike the maybe uh, 15 years ago where, okay, you could buy a company, put a certain amount of leverage on it, and then generate a return as as you delevered, well, guess what? I think the prices have gone up high enough that you've got to figure out how to add value. What are you going to do as a partner with these companies to make a difference? For example, is there a great, wonderful, small regional company that's got a great presence in the United States, but they've never thought about doing business outside of the United States? Can you globalize that? Uh, Can you do uh, uh, take a company and and do a roll-up where instead of just in one or two states, you're operating nationally? But uh, unless you can figure out how to add value, I think the cost has gone up high enough that several of these companies are going to have financial difficulty, particularly, David, if interest rates go up much.
0: For our audience, Harry Kramer brings wisdom. I just want you to know that the Nor Group is available for sale for $100 million. <laughs> if, if you have a checkbook available, please reach out to me, DNOR at... No, I'm kidding. So, <laughs> so <laughs> you serve on several boards. You mentioned you know working with you know very different executives and leadership teams and and adding value, you know, as an investor, as a board member. Harry, what board attributes, challenges, or opportunities concern you the most?
1: Yeah, I'm smiling, David, because this one comes up a lot. Being fortunate enough to serve on right now 10 boards, that's pretty much what I do when I'm not teaching. uh, Three public companies, three private companies, and and 4 nonprofits. i I'm smiling, David, because this one may sound simple, may actually sound like common sense, and that's why I quote Mark Twain who said, you know, everything is common sense. The problem is common sense is not common. Here's the simple rule, David, that'll be helpful. If if management manages and boards govern, everything works out perfect. The problem is often you get people on the board who want to get involved in management, or management is weak enough that they're encouraging the board to get involved. Well, as soon as the boards get involved in management, well, who's running the company? Is the CEO running the company or is the board running the company? And interestingly enough, one of my mentors, Mr. Graham, who was the long-term chairman of Baxter Healthcare, Baxter International, he often described the best board position, David, and with your work, I'm sure you've seen this, as a window. And David, if you're the CEO and I'm on your board, the reason it's a window, I open the window. I give you advice. I challenge you. I question. I try to help you get things done. But it's not a door. I can't come through the door and start operating. All right. That's your role, your management I'm the board. And in fact, I always love the overall summary, which is if it's really effective, if the board is really effective, the only operational decision the board will make, they'll do a lot of governance, but the only operational decision they'll make is, hey, is David Knorr the right CEO? And can we develop him? And if we can't, do we need to change him out? Okay, but but that is true. The other danger, the danger, and I'm sure some of your folks with boards will will deal with because I, I talk to people about this and give advice all the time is when you're putting somebody on the board, David, make sure that they no longer feel in their board role that they're the guy, that they're the man or woman who their view needs to be what to do because they're not the guy. The CEO is the man or woman running it. And I could give you a lot of examples of that.
0: For our audience, I'm fairly active in an organization called National Association of Corporate Directors, and I couldn't have recommend NACD enough. And I got to tell you, I went through their director of professionalism, and I earned my governance fellow accreditation. And Harry, you'd be, you'd be proud of this. One of the biggest things NACD drives into every new or even aspiring board members is nose in, fingers off, right? Exactly, exactly what you said. Our job is not there to run it, your job is there to govern, your job is there to ask great questions and really engage the management and support the management in their ever endeavors to run the business. So well said perfect. Like, you know couldn't. I love the windows and door analogy, right? Don't, don't, it reminds me of my, my mother also said, "Don't ever outwear you welcome. right? So <laughs> that's, a, that's another sage advice for a lot of board
1: members.: Absolutely.
0: So do you believe attracting, developing, retaining exceptional talent? has become more difficult or less during this pandemic? And if so, why?
1: You know, you, you always ask great questions, David. I guess my opinion, because I, I should have said up front, I have very few answers, David, many opinions. I, I don't do not do q and I do a lot of Q&A, question and opinion. And interestingly enough, in, in reflecting what you're asking, I look at it as over this year, just this past year, it's actually worked relatively well because I think people realize there's a crisis. They realize that we got to be careful how we do things as an organization. I think organizations have been able to retain people, particularly organizations that have treated people well. So I actually think we've managed through this process and most organizations relatively well for a year. However, here's the big however. This cannot go on much longer because with all your work, David, you know, at the end of the day, what is the real role of leadership? It's developing talent, developing people. Hard to develop talent if you can't get people together, if you can't be in the same room, you can't break bread together, you can't take a walk. And so, yes, we've managed through this for a year, and I think that's, that's pretty good. But now, I really do believe that the technology has enabled us to do a lot of things, like the discussion you and I are having today pretty effectively. But I'm not wild about the fact of hiring people that I can't be in the same room with and take a walk with and really, really understand the body language in, in three dimensions. So we've we've managed it through it okay, but I think we got to get out of this pretty quick or the, the impact on talent management and development will suffer significantly.
0: Talking about trends that this pandemic has accelerated versus trends that it's trying to change. Are there some trends through this pandemic that you believe are going to have a Period. disproportionate impact on enterprise value creation moving forward?
1: Absolutely. And again, David, I'm I'm smiling because every time I hear the comment of, well, when we get back to normal, all right, and I'm sure with your work, David, you know this better than I, it's going to be a new normal. It's already becoming a new normal. And I think that there's, again, some positives and some negatives of, of, of things of change that we're going to have. I actually do think, as crazy as this has been, as difficult it has been, and I, I pray for all the people that have lost uh, family and friends and, and during this process, one of the positives is that I think more people have actually had a chance to become a little more reflective. David, I think there's a little bit more thought of: Have we confused activity and productivity? You know, do I need to run out over out to New York for that two-hour meeting, or is that two-hour meeting one that I could do on Zoom? Okay, I can't do them all, but. How much, when I said, oh, I really don't like to travel, is that really true? Or do you really don't like to admit it, but, but you did it? And when I see the changes happening, just on boards, David, has been significant. As you well know, with all your work on out- boards, you know, the average board now meets six times a year. And six times a year, I would fly to Washington, D.C. for one of my boards. Well, interestingly enough, a lot of boards now are starting to say, hey, it's really important we get together sometime and meet together in the same room, have dinner, meet with the management teams. But do we need to do that six times a year? Maybe we do that twice a year and the other four times we do it on, on virtual. Well, think about that one statement, David. You go from six to two, that is a 66% reduction in air travel, hotels, dinners, you know, car rentals or whatever. And so when I think about That blend, and I think it will be a blend as to how we're going to operate. You know, what instead of going to the office five days a week, geez, will we go two days a week? And by the way, if you're in Midtown Manhattan and with 10,000 employees, do you need the space for 10,000 employees? Or do you now only need half or a third of the real estate and you share offices because only half the people are there at any one time? So you think of the dynamics that this is going to take place across the total board. I think it's going to have an enormous impact, some positive, some negative.
0: So now you've got me curious about your own journey, right? And I love, I love your story of I, I went there. I went to Baxter as, you know, a, a young, vibrant learner and, and I'm, you know, looking for an opportunity to learn and grow and ended up staying 25 years. So Harry, in thinking about your own journey, are there some, and I know you do a lot of this today, but coaching or advice you received? that you believe had a had a profound impact on you?
1: You know, I as I reflect on that, David, a lot of, lot of thoughts come to mind. I'll, I'll give you a few. I think one of the things we all struggle with is, geez, do I stay in the current organization I'm in in this role, or do I stay in the current organization in a different role, or do I leave? And one of the pieces of advice I got very early on was, Harry, you should develop at any stage in your career the reasons, and how you're going to operate to decide what you're going to do and where. And I developed three coming out of Kellogg with a lot of folks' help. And the three I'd had, and I think everybody should have three, but they may be different, was do, whether I stay or go someplace else has the following. If I stay, will I have the opportunity to learn and grow? Will I have the opportunity to add value and make a difference? Or are people paying me a lot of money, but I'm not really adding a lot of value? And then number three, am I having fun? You and I know how short... Life is, David. Am I doing what I'm doing? And is it fun? Then the other perspective in my mind was that I thought was very, very helpful is my grandfather's comment of never let your identity be your job. Okay, your job's important. Your career's important, but it's one part of your life. And you and I have seen the cases when somebody's identity becomes their job and all of a sudden the company's going through a crisis and they can't lose their job. They may start to do some really bad things that they shouldn't be doing as opposed to, you know, if, if you and I were on an airplane together from Chicago to San Francisco when I was at Baxter, yeah, you'd know I live in Wilmette, Illinois, and I've got five kids. You know, you'd know that I like baseball. And yes, I work for Baxter and I enjoy being at Baxter. But I have no reason to tell you I'm the chief financial officer for a twelve billion dollar company or I'm the chairman of the CEO. All right? Never let your identity be your job was a was a big one for me. And also this whole idea of do you do you really want to focus on success, Harry? Or should it be significance? And, and what what are you leaving behind in terms of what kind of leader you want to be? And you know that that Gandhi quote, which I always had in my office, of be the difference that you want to see in the world. And realize, as I, I tell the students, when you think about all the issues in the world, and you and I, David, could take the time to talk about global poverty, global health care, digital divide, the environment. And I I will always say to the students, well, who's going to solve all these issues? And the response usually is, oh, it's this famous group of people called those guys. And I'm saying, wait a minute, we are those guys. If we're not the men or women who's going to deal with these things and make the world a better place while we're here, who is? Who is? And that's what leadership is all about, as you know. You're not watching the movie. You're in the movie. You're actually one of the people that are going to make it happen. And that's had a big impact on me. It's one of the reasons I love teaching leadership, value, and ethics, and doing everything I can to support uh, one of my students that started the, uh, the One Acre Fund in, in Africa 10 years ago.
0: Harry, you've been a fabulous guest on the Curvebenders podcast. What's the best way for our audience to learn more about you and your work? You
1: know what, David? My my students at Kellogg actually set up a website for me, and it's just Harry org. And Kramer obviously has two E's in it. And you can get access to, you know, my my three leadership books. There's videos, there's articles. The students actually have me do a, a blog post. And on the website you can send in a question, which again no answers, but opinions, and I respond to every email that I receive, David. And it's this is something I at turning sixty-five. I think the dean was wondering, well, Harry, what are your plans? And I, and I had to tell her, you know what? You have to understand, I'm down to my last 15 years because by the time I'm 80, I may end up starting to slow down, David.
0: <laughs> for our audience, if you join us late, you've been listening to Harry Kramer, executive partner at Madison Dearborn Partners, a private equity firm based in Chicago, and a clinical professor of leadership at Kellogg at Northwestern University. Harry, thank you for being our guest
1: on the Curvebenders podcast. It's been wonderful to be with you, David. Take good care of yourself. Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. If you like listening to this show as much as I enjoyed being a guest on this show, maybe you'll be a fan of my new podcast, The Indispensables. Each week, I ask my guests what sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. I've interviewed some amazing people at all levels and organizations of all shapes and sizes with some amazing stories, including the former Chief of Staff of the United States Army, General Dennis Ryan. New York Times columnist Ron Lieber, Kara Golden, the founder and CEO of Hint, and many, many more. Consider please listening and subscribing to The Indispensables on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this show.
0: By the way, three quick points. We turned the show notes from these podcasts into more in-depth articles. You can find those in our online private community called The Forum. So check that out at norgroup.com slash forum. Number two, we've completely revamped our newsletter to make them even more practical and relevant with both a free and a premium version coming up. So check that out at Norgroup.com slash newsletter. And lastly, we want to bring the content from these episodes to life. So check out our various social media channels with the hashtag Curvebenders for the latest updates. I hope you found this conversation with my friend Harry Kramer of Interest and Value. This is your nor Summary Notes. Hopefully in three minutes or less, I can... Uh, summarize the key ideas in this session. Number one, love Harry's focus on value based leaders and specifically defined, you know, he defined them as those who are reflective and understand their values, their purpose, and make impact on people working around them. Two, he said to foster value based leadership, you need to be self reflective, balanced in your perspective. Have true self-confidence and genuine humility. I've always said the fundamental difference between confidence is I know a lot, but there's a lot more I can learn. Arrogance is I know a lot and there's nothing new I can learn. You got to figure out what you truly want in your life journey and others would see you as creating value for them in their journey. Last but not least, number three, after the pandemic, the new normal of working structure should really be considered carefully by these leaders. Whether it's fully in person or a blend of both, you need to clarify by companies what their new culture, what their hybrid culture will look like. Don't forget, uh, we post the show notes from this episode in the NOR Forum, so check us out at norgroup.com slash forum. I'm so grateful for all of our listeners on the Curvebenders podcast. I'd love to hear from you with ideas, with suggestions, with guests you'd love to hear from at this intersection of future of work, strategic relationships, and nonlinear growth. You can simply email podcast at norgroup.com or follow us on various social media channels where I use the hashtag Curvebenders to keep you posted on our latest progress.